R.C. Sproul, in his classic, The Holiness of God, illustrates uh, clearly our tendency to presume upon grace. Here's what he says. Our tendency is to take grace for granted, and it was driven home to me while teaching college students. I had the assignment of teaching a freshman Old Testament course to 250 students at a Christian college. On the first day of class, I went over the course assignments carefully. My experience taught me that the assignment of term papers required a special degree of explanation. This course required three short term papers. I explained to the students that the first paper was due on my desk by noon, the last day of September. No extensions were to be given, except for students who were physically confined to the infirmary or or those who had a death in the immediate family. If the paper was not turned in on time, the student would receive an F for the assignment. The students acknowledged that they understood the requirements. On the last day of September, 225 students dutifully handed in their term papers. 25 students stood quaking in terror, full of remorse. They cried, oh, Professor Sproul, we are so sorry. We didn't budget our time properly. We didn't make the proper adjustment from high school to college. Please don't give us an F. Please, please give us an extension. I bowed to their plea for mercy. All right, I said, I'll give you a break this time. But remember, the next assignment is due the last day of October. The students were profuse in their gratitude and filled the air with solemn promises of being on time for the next assignment. Then came the last day of October. 200 students came with their papers. 50 students came empty-handed. They were nervous, but not in a panic. When I asked for their term papers, again they were contrite. Oh, professor, it was homecoming. Besides, it's midterm time, and all our other assignments are due. Please give us one more chance. We promise it'll never happen again. Once more, I relented. I said, okay, but this is the last time. If you are late for the next paper, it will be an F. No excuses, no whining, just an F. Is that clear? Oh, yes, professor, you are terrific. Spontaneously, the class began to sing, We love you, Prof. Sproul. Oh, yes, we do. I was Mr. Popularity. Can you guess what happened on the last day of November? Right. 150 students came with their term papers. The other 100 strolled into the lecture hall utterly unconcerned. Where are your term papers, I asked. One student replied, oh, don't worry about it, Prof. We're working on them. We'll have them for you in a couple of days. No sweat. I picked up my lethal black grade book and began taking down names. Johnson, do you have your paper? No, sir, came the reply. That's an F. I said as I wrote in the grade book, Muldaney, do you have your paper? Again, no, sir, was the reply. F, I wrote in the book. The students reacted with unmitigated fury. They howled in protest, screaming, this is not fair. I looked at one of the howling students. I said, Lavery, you think it's not fair? No, he growled in response. I see. So it's justice you want. I seem to recall that you were late with your paper the last time. If you insist upon justice, you will certainly get it. 
I'll not only give you an F for this assignment, but I'll change your last grade to the F you so richly deserved. The student was stunned. He had no more arguments to make. He apologized for being so hasty. Suddenly, he was willing to settle for one F instead of two. The students had quickly taken my mercy for granted. They assumed it. And when justice suddenly fell, they were unprepared for it. It came as a shock, and they were outraged. This after only two doses of mercy in the space of two months. Just because... God hasn't whacked you. Just because God hasn't rained down fire and brimstone upon you because of your sin. Don't misunderstand that. Don't interpret that as God being indifferent or apathetical about your sin. To make that mistake would be disastrous. That's what we want to talk about this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with us to 2 Peter chapter 3. Last two weeks of Peter, this week and next week. If you remember, Peter told us in chapter 1 that he believes his death is imminent. These are the final words of Peter. He dearly loves these people, and this is his last appeal. Uh, that they walk uprightly before God. Chapter 3, verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Notice the word beloved. He's used it before in the letter, uses it four times in the final chapter. If you have uh, NIV, I think it says something like, dear friends, uh, that is much too mild. It is actually a much stronger term. Peter genuinely loves these people. He's very concerned about the false teachers. He's about to die, and this is his last appeal, that they listen and walk uprightly. When he says, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He said almost the identical thing in chapter 1. To stir up means to stir awake, to wake up, to keep awake. Sincere carries the idea that if you honestly want to be a Christ follower, if you want to travel the path of life, if you're serious about your Christian life, then you need to stay awake. The false teachers are out there, and they're very good at what they do. He reminds them to consider your source of truth. And again, he roots it back to the prophets and the apostles. We would say today that truth comes from the inspired, authoritative, reliable word of God. Anything other than that is merely someone's opinion. So again, kind of a reminder of what he's already said. Verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. 
Sometimes you hear people today say, you know, I think we might be in the last days, to which I always say, well, we are in the last days. They started with the ascension of Jesus, and they will continue until the return of Christ. We've been in the last days for about 2,000 years. The idea is that in these last days, the mockers will mock. It's kind of an interesting way to say it, but in essence, he's saying that's who they are. That's their nature. And so they're going to be true to their nature, and the mockers will mock. Basically, it's the reminder that if you're going to travel the path of life, if you're going to be a serious Christ follower, you need to come to grips with the fact there's going to be people that are going to laugh at you. They are going to mock you. They're going to make fun of you. They're going to attack you. They're going to accuse you of being somehow intellectually challenged. You're just kind of dumb and naive. If you think that by being a serious Christ follower, everyone around you is going to love you and respect you, you are sadly mistaken. At some point, you come to grips with the fact that the mockers will mock. I think we all understand this in an age of so-called tolerance. It's always sobering how incredibly intolerant our culture is toward those who follow Christ. And I would not imagine that getting better in the near future. If you're going to be serious about following Jesus, you better understand the mockers will mock. Why do they mock? The text tells us because they follow after their own lusts. Peter has taught us this. They want to indulge the flesh. They want to be their own God. They want to live their lives their own way. They want to create their own moral standard. They want to uh, pursue whatever makes them happy. If it feels good, do it. And they despise authority. They are offended that anyone would possibly suggest that there is an absolute moral standard and that they somehow will be held accountable one day for their behavior. They so hate that message that they mock and they laugh and they make fun. That is the way it's going to be, and we need to understand that. What are the false teachers, the mockers, specifically mocking uh, that Peter's addressing? Well, he tells us, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. What the mockers are mocking, specifically in this case, is the concept of the return of Christ. This has come up in 1 Peter, it comes up in 2 Peter. This idea that Jesus is actually coming back and that he's going to hold people accountable. The mockers think that's funny. They laugh and mock at that. It's been maybe 30 maybe 40 years since the ascension of Christ, no, sent, uh, no sign of Jesus, and so they mock and make fun. Now, this should make sense. If you're going to function as your own God, if you're going to indulge the flesh, if you're going to live your life your way on your terms, you've got to convince yourself at the end of the story there will be no accountability, there will be no judgment. 
And so you can see how this all works together. That I want to indulge my flesh. I want to live my life my way. So I laugh at the idea of an ultimate judgment. Certainly that cannot be true. And their rationale for that is ever since the beginning, generation after generation after generation, they live, they die, they live, they die. And as far as I can see, no intervention from God. I don't see God showing up and judging anyone. I don't see God whacking anyone from heaven. So if that's true, why not eat, drink, and be merry? That's the logic of the false teachers. To which Peter responds, verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Now, it's helpful to know when it says it escapes their notice, the Greek implies they intentionally choose not to see. At the end of the day, people see what they want to see. And the mockers are intentionally choosing to see the world a particular way. People formulate a worldview. It becomes the lens through which they view the world, and they see what they want to see. And so the mockers are saying, as far as I can see, I don't see any times where God intervened and whacked somebody. So the idea that Jesus would come back and do that is laughable. To which Peter responds, hey, they see what they want to see. But last time I checked, Peter says, seems to me God intervened in a pretty significant way when he created the universe. Peter's language almost exactly copies the language of Genesis chapter 1. This idea that God created This idea of why is there something rather than nothing? Did the universe self-create? Which is, of course, a nonsensical statement. If you don't exist, you can't create yourself. So how did all this start? Where did it come from? Wouldn't that have to be the great intervention of God into human history? Many of you are aware this last week, Stephen Hawking died. He's a very interesting story. Overcame significant limitations, and in many ways lived a very courageous life, a remarkable intellect. There's so many things about his story that are quite impressive. And yet, on the other hand, his story is a very tragic, sad story. How could you have seen and discovered and spent your whole life admiring the wonder of the universe and miss the fact that God created? What is the option? The universe self-created? The problem with Stephen Hawking, it wasn't his intellect. He was brilliant. The problem was... you see what you want to see. He was determined to be his own God. He was determined to live life on his terms. He was convinced at the end of the story, there is no God, there is no judgment. You live and you die. And he saw everything through that lens. You see what you want 
to see. You know, sometimes I will hear people say, you know, if God is real, why doesn't he just show himself? Why doesn't he just show up in the sky, manifest himself, let's settle it once for all? Why wouldn't he do that? I think, well, that's a really good question. I wonder what might be a good way to do that. I mean, what if God became flesh and actually walked on the earth? That'd be pretty good. And what if he, for hundreds of years, sent prophets to say, by the way, God's going to do that. God's going to do that. Don't miss it. He's going to do that. And what if in that moment in history, just to make sure nobody missed that, he did all kinds of crazy things like, I don't know, what if a teenage girl woke up one morning and she was pregnant without ever having sexual relations with a man? That'd be pretty dramatic. And what if when he was born, he did something like send a bunch of angels into the sky to announce it? And what about a wondrous, miraculous star And what about some magi from the east that would come and it would be so impressive, even King Herod would sit up and take notice? That'd be pretty good. And what if when he grew up, there was a forerunner whose only job was to keep pointing at him and say, there he is, there he is. The prophets have said for hundreds of years, and there he is right there, don't miss him. That'd be helpful. And what if he not only claimed to be God, but actually demonstrated himself to be God? What if he did like crazy things like walk on water, calm the sea, feed 5,000 with a few loaves and fish? What if the lame were made to walk and, I don't know, the blind see? Maybe even raise the dead to life? And what if these were done in city after city after city in front of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people? That seems like it would be helpful. And what if when he was executed, it actually became dark in the middle of the day across the land for three hours, just to send a message? And what if he actually claimed, even if you crucify me, by the way, three days later, I will rise from the dead. And he actually appeared to over 500 people at one time just to validate his claim. It seems to me if God were to do something like that, wouldn't everyone be convinced? And yet amazingly, even people in the first century chose not to believe. Why? Because people see what they want to see. If my worldview is such that I'm determined to indulge the flesh, that I despise authority, that I want to convince myself that there will be no judgment at the end, I'm free to live as I please, then I create a worldview through which I view everything. And I simply see what I want to see. That's what Peter is saying about these false teachers. He goes on in verse 6. We talked about water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. So the argument of the false teachers is the idea of Jesus coming back and there being judgment is ridiculous. We see no evidence of that. So Peter's reminding them of something he's already told them. In chapter 2 he said, hey, 
Remember, God judged the angels. Don't forget Noah and the flood. Don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah. Now he's just kind of bringing back a summary that there are times in history where God intervened with judgment to remind people today he's serious about this. Just because God hasn't rained down hellfire and brimstone on people today doesn't mean God's apathetical or indifferent about sin. God has demonstrated that in history. Verse 7, But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So now the reminder, Jesus is coming back. And there will be a judgment day. People will be held accountable. Fire in the New Testament is rarely used, literally, it's almost always used figuratively for judgment. And so, in this case, when he says the ungodly will be destroyed, it doesn't mean annihilated. He used the exact same word in verse 6, that when the flood of Noah's day came, it destroyed the world. We didn't annihilate the world. Noah and his family landed on dry land, and God started over. It's the same word. It just means judgment. Now, we struggle with this in our culture. The more we marginalize God, the more we move God out, the more we create a vacuum into which evil moves. And as long as we convince ourselves at the end of the day, there's no accountability, there's no judgment, then people to feel free to do as they please because there will be no final accountability. We even feel this when people go into places and they will kill lots of people and then they kill themselves. And people in our culture kind of feel cheated by that. We wanted the bad guy arrested and tried and, and punished in some way. And uh, we as a culture kind of feel cheated because we didn't get that chance. But we as Christians understand that nobody gets away with anything. At the end of the day, there is judgment. There is accountability. God will settle the score. God will make things right again. So as believers, we know that, and it affects the way we live our lives. We'll talk more about that next week. But he moves then to verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice beloved that the lord that with the lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day the lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance Peter reminds them that, yes, it's true. Jesus has not returned yet. At that point, 30 to 40 years after his ascension, the mockers are already saying he's not coming back. Now we're 2,000 years removed from that. And it would be easy for the mockers to say this idea of Jesus coming back and there being ultimate accountability is just silly. 
It's like science fiction. It's ridiculous. But Peter reminds us, hey, wait a minute here. God's timetable is not the same as our timetable. We think a long life, 70 years, 80 years. But God is eternal. God's not on the same timeline as we are. And what may seem like a long delay to us may not be much to God. A day is like a thousand years. It's a verse that's been misused in a lot of ways, but in this case, in this context, just simply saying God's timetable and our timetable are really different. But then he goes on to say, but by the way, this is what's really happening. The reason God is delaying, the reason Jesus hasn't returned yet, is not because he's slow. It's not because he's not going to keep his promise. It's not because he's apathetical or indifferent about sin. It's because he is long-suffering. He is patient. He desires that no one perish. Therefore, he waits in order that all might come to repentance. God waits. Even though people on earth, they mock him, They laugh at him. They deny him. They do evil in his face. They do all they can to offend him. And yet, rather than stepping in and dealing with it, he waits. Why does he wait? He waits in order that people might repent and experience his salvation. I think all of us have those moments where we're just, we're worn out, we're hurt, and we long for the return of Christ. Let's just be done with this, and let's move on to the new heaven and the new earth, because it's going to be paradise Forever. We all have those moments. I have those moments. And I think, I wish Jesus would just come back today. And then I remember, but wait a minute. I have people in my life I deeply care about. And if Jesus came back today, they would be lost forever. Then I rethink that and I say, Jesus, wait a minute. One more day. One more day. This weekend, around the world, hundreds of people in churches all around the world will come to faith in Jesus. These are people that if Jesus would have returned yesterday, they would have been lost forever. But out of his patience and his grace and his mercy, he held off one more day. 
And around the world today, hundreds will come to know Jesus as Savior, and they will spend forever in paradise with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus waited one more day. God isn't like an angry judge waiting to whack people. He's like the father in the story of the prodigal son. Day after day after day, he waits. And he looks to the horizon and he wonders, will this be the day that my son finally goes home? He's not wanting to whack him. He's not wanting to punish him. He's wanting to love him. He's wanting to hug him. He just wants his son Come home. And so he waits. He waits one more day. There's people in this auditorium this morning. If Jesus had come back yesterday, you'd be lost forever. You'd be lost forever. I just want to appeal to you this morning. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Don't presume upon the grace and mercy of God. There is a judgment day coming. He's waiting. He doesn't want any to perish. He wants you to experience his gift of salvation. Perhaps some of you have just never understood that actually God did become flesh. He died on a cross in payment for your sin. Was buried and rose again and he offers you salvation freely as a gift to be received by faith. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what's been done to you. Jesus didn't come back yesterday. Or maybe it was just for you. I just want to ask you again, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? For all of us, there is this sobering reality. The false teachers are real and they are powerful. They are deceitful. They have a highly effective marketing campaign. And they lead Christians astray at an alarming rate. You were convinced it would make you happy. This is where life would be found. Now you're stuck in the mud. It's not what you thought it was going to be. At some point, you have to be honest enough to say, hey, yeah. I got deceived. I got off the path. I chased something that I thought would make me happy. Now I'm miserable. Again, I'm not asking who you pretend to be when you put on your mask and come to church. I'm not asking who you pretend to be on social media. I'm asking who are you in the middle of the night lying in your bed and you can't sleep? And you're hurt? You're confused? You're wounded? You feel the shame and the guilt? the disappointment and the struggle. You wonder, how did this happen? 
How did this happen? Some of you wonder, will I ever make it back on the path of freedom in life? As I said last week, some of you are turning to drugs and alcohol. It's your way of coping with it. You think you can handle it, but you know deep and down you're not handling it. It's getting out of control. Some of you have turned to pornography. Started with a little curiosity. Now it's out of control and you can't stop. Your days are filled with lies and deceit. Cover up. It's exhausting. And honestly, you wonder in your heart, will you ever know another day of freedom? It starts by being honest enough to say, hey, the false teachers lured me off the path. I went down the wrong path, and now I have a mess. Maybe this morning you're ready to be done with that. Maybe this morning you're ready to face the reality of that and say, you know, I'm done with that. I'm ready to get back on the path of life. I'm ready to know freedom again. I'm ready to confess my sin and repent of this. This morning I want to take the first step to getting back to the freedom that Jesus offers. We're actually going to give you a chance to do that this morning. We don't do this very often. But sometimes people really appreciate the opportunity to actually step out and deal with things. So I'm going to invite the band to come up and tell you how we're going to do this. Just a moment, we're going to sing the final song. During that song, we're going to give you the opportunity to just step out. Come down, kneel on the steps, and do your business with God. For some of you... God is speaking to your heart this morning, and this is the morning you're ready to trust Christ. Jesus didn't come back yesterday. He waited. He's not waiting as an angry judge. He's waiting as a loving heavenly daddy. He keeps watching the horizon, wondering if this will be the day that you finally come home. What are you waiting for? For the others of you, there is a war going on in your gut this morning. I would invite others to pray. I guarantee you there is a spiritual war going on in this building this morning. There's people who feel it deeply. They know it's time to face their sin, to repent of their sin. It's time to take their first step to finding their freedom in Christ again. You don't have to live this way. Nobody here is waiting to whack you or to shame you. We just want to help. But you have to have the courage to step out and to face it, to deal with it. Let's be done with the bondage. Let's be done with the hurt and the disappointment. Let's get back on the path of life. There's some of you this morning, you are going to make that decision. It's the first step to finding freedom. It will change the trajectory of your life. But sadly, there's going to be others you're just going to dig in you're going to dig in. And five years from now, you're still going to be in bondage. My prayer is that you would, this morning, seize the moment. 
Jesus didn't come back yesterday because he's long-suffering, he's patient. He gave you a chance to have this moment today to make things right. So I invite you to stand. We'll sing this closing song. After the song, I'm going to pray for the people that have come down uh, front. After that, you'll see a slide that will dismiss the rest of you. Just ask that you quietly exit the auditorium. We're going to protect the auditorium as a safe place. Give these people as long as they want to stay here and do their business with God. You'll also notice people with lanyards hanging around the front. They're just there to help. If you want somebody to talk to you, if you want somebody to pray with you, maybe you need to ask somebody, what do you think my next steps need to be? Those people are there to help you. My prayer is that this morning would be the first step. You'd have the courage to look deep into your heart and say, you know, I need to be done with this. I'm ready to travel the path of life again. Let's get that done this morning.